So this week, we're reminded of the depravity of man. We were reminded of heartbreak, of tragedy, and our country searches for answers. Our country begins to debate and re-debate policy. We debate and continue the discussion on how to stop evil. And although we mourn, And Christians, we should be mourning. We should be grieving. To mourn and to grieve are Christian things to do. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to mourn with those who mourn. And so although we mourn, we do not mourn as those with no hope. For we have hope. And that is what the book of Revelation is all about. Today we are going to wrap up our study on Revelation, and we titled this study Hopeful because this book should be giving us hope. It was written to give us hope. It was the last book written. It was written somewhere in the 90s, probably early 90s. I don't mean 1990s. This wasn't on like par with gangster rap. It was written in the original 90s, but it was the last one written. And it's the end cap. So we start off in Genesis. And Genesis introduces us to the the creation. And then it introduces us to the fall. And we, we understand why there is depravity. Because man rebelled against God. And not just Adam. Adam rebelled and that started it. And that brought in corruption to the entire universe. But each one of us has rebelled against God. We've all shaken our fist at God at some point in our life and said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. I know you have a way. You you created this world with principles. But I want to do it my way. And each one of us in our rebellion has brought in sin. And we have brought in death. And each one of us have a depraved heart, and each one of us has to struggle with that. That's what Genesis introduces us to. And then it gives us the entire story throughout the Bible, the entire story of God's salvation history. Although we have rebelled against God, He has put a plan to redeem us. And so we see this redemption plan, the salvation plan coming out through all of Scripture. And in Revelation, we get to look at how it's going to play out in the end. And so Revelation is the bookmark. It's the end. It's the final chapter. And it gives us hope because we get to see that salvation will come. And so as we wrap this series up, we're going to do a bit of review And then we're going to get into the epilogue. So the the book actually starts off with a prologue. This introduces the book to us. And it gives us the process of the vision. The Father gives the vision to the Son. The Son gives the vision to angels. The angels give the vision to John, who write the vision down, to give the vision to the church. After the prologue, we step into vision number one, which is seven different letters to seven different churches. Each church faces a unique challenge to compromise the truth of the gospel. There is pressure put on every single church to compromise, 
to not hold on to the truth of the gospel that is still true to this day. Now, if you remember our history lesson, Nero was, was the Caesar in earlier church history, and he had what we call a hard per- persecution. And so he was burning Christians in his garden to light up his garden at night. That's hardcore persecution. But they've discovered that that didn't really solve their Christian problem. In fact, it made it worse because Christians still found joy and still preached the gospel. And people looked at Christians like, what on earth is different? You guys are being tortured and you still have joy. And the gospel spread. But in the 90s, the tactics changed. And under Domitian, it was no longer hard persecution, but soft persecution. Meaning, they weren't burning Christians at night. They weren't feeding Christians to the lions. They just changed the tax laws a little bit. Oh, so you don't want to come to the pagan temple and, and participate in everything that we do at the pagan temple? You can't be a part of our work community anymore. You can't partake in the economy anymore. And so Christians slowly started to starve. And they started to compromise just a little bit here and a little bit there. And so the seven letters to the seven different churches give them encouragement. We still face this. Throughout the history of the church, we have faced compromise. And the question will be, will we compromise? Or will we stand true to the Scripture? Will we stand true to the biblical truth that God has delivered from Genesis all the way through? And then to encourage them, to keep them going, to not compromise God gives John three visions. And so Revelation is outlined by a prologue, four visions, and then an epilogue. So the first vision is the seven letters to the seven churches. The second vision will give us the end times. And it will show us how God is going to judge the world. Now some people don't like that word judge. They don't like the connotations it might bring. But first of all, I have to point out that a just, loving God will judge. You and I, we desire justice, but because our hearts are depraved, because our hearts are wicked, we can't fully experience justice on this earth, but we also can't fully give out justice. But God can. And so a just, loving God is also a God that will bring in judgment. And if you have an issue with that, I'd... I'd like you to take a moment and think for a second. If someone broke into your house, and think of the person you cherish the most, the person that you love more than any other person, or maybe it's a group of people, maybe it's your entire family, they broke into your house, and right in front of your eyes, they tortured those people, the people you love the most. They absolutely tortured them so you could hear the screams of pain. And after all of that, they killed them. And then you said, oh, no big deal, I'm going to go watch some TV. Did you really love those people? No, the fact that these people were tortured and you could hear it, that would would stir up anger in you. And you would want justice. And you would want judgment to come upon the person who was torturing your family. 
throughout the history of humanity, God has watched humans torture other humans. And you better believe because he loves us, his wrath and his anger has been stirred. Now the difference between his wrath and anger and my wrath and anger is his is perfect. And mine is flawed. So in my wrath and anger, I'm flawed and I will never be able to give out true justice, but God in His perfect wrath and His perfect anger can bring true judgment and true justice. And so that's what this next vision, the second vision, will give us a picture of. God's perfect wrath, God's perfect anger, God's perfect judgment that comes from His perfect love for His creation. And so we walk through that the, the second vision, and, and the, it's... Uh, outlined with three sets of seven judgments. The first set of seven are the seals. And the seals lift, the first set of seals lift the restrainer. And so we get this idea that right now there is someone or something, we won't get into the debate of what it is, but restraining the depravity of man. And so although we have wicked hearts, there's something in the world right now, we're kind of restraining that a little bit. Now just think about the wickedness that we see throughout this world, and yet that wickedness is being restrained. Well, in the first set of judgments, that restrainer will be lifted, and we will see how truly wicked man can be. And what God is doing with this, and throughout all of these judgments, is he's actually compelling us to repentance. Because right now, some people have a, a, actually think that they're good enough. They, we don't realize that our true wickedness. And you and I sometimes struggle with that. Have you ever thought, man, I'm pretty good. God did something great when he made me. You're wicked just like I am. We have depraved hearts. And when God lifts that restrainer during the first of the three judgments, we will see how absolutely horrible the human heart is. And it will end with a fourth of humanity dying off in war. A fourth of humanity killing each other off. That's how absolutely wicked our hearts are. So after that, we'll see the seven trumpets. And during the seven trumpets, God, the first four of the trumpets, God will do uh, supernatural catastrophic events to prove that he is real. So he's going to lift the restrainer. We will see our depravity. And then he will have these catastrophic events that will be in such a supernatural way that no one's going to be able to say, well, that was just an earthquake, that was just physics, that's just how the world works. It's going to be so supernatural that people will be in awe of God saying, we are depraved, we are wicked, and there is a real God who is full of justice. And once again, this is all to compel humanity to come to repentance. And after those supernatural acts, then he will literally release hell on earth. And so he's going to release demons from an abyss, and they will come and they will torture humanity. And the torture will be so horrific that humans will beg to die as a last shaking their fist in rebellion to God, saying, I I am in control, you are not. And yet God will say, nope, it's not going to happen. You're begging to die, 
but I won't let you. Now that seems pretty jacked up to some people, but if we, re- if we take the eternal perspective once again, and we take the salvation history once again, God knows what eternity is going to look like. And the whole reason why he releases hell on earth is so that humanity can get an, a perspective of what hell will look like. And so he releases these demons to torture humans so that they can get a taste of what it's going to be, all as an act to compel humans to repent. We can see our depravity, we can tell that he is God and we are not, and then we get a taste of what eternity will be like, all to compel us to repent. And yet, a great multitude still do not repent. And think about that for a second. They decide that they're going to worship the demons, the very things that are tormenting them, rather than say, God, you are God, and I am not. Now, on the bright side, a great multitude, so many that John can't even count them, do come to repentance during this time. But there will be a multitude that still shake their fist in rebellion. And then John draws us into what theologians call an interlude. This brings us deeper into the vision, and he talks, tells us about two witnesses who will be the witnesses for God, and yet they will be killed because people wanted to continue in their sin. And then after that, we'll look at the unholy trinity, which is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And John will show us that these, although they want to be God, are only a shadow of what God really is. And so the unholy trinity will promise people that they, things that they can never deliver. All those things that you've ever wanted in your life, the unholy trinity will promise you, and yet those things will never actually satisfy. Because the only thing that can really satisfy is God. And so we all have these desires in our heart, and we oftentimes chase these desires thinking that this thing, this is the thing that will make me happy. Have you ever had that where you like, you thought this one thing, this thing is going to be the one thing that will like finally fully satisfy me, and you got that thing, and you weren't satisfied? What did you do? Did you turn to God and say, God, I recognize that you are really the thing that will satisfy me? Or did you develop a new thing that you thought would satisfy? We see this often with young people. If only I could just get married, then I will be fully satisfied. It's that marriage, you know, that that time. And don't get me wrong, marriage is a fantastic gift from God. But if you're going into marriage hoping that the other one is going to be the one that satisfies you, you are going to be totally let down. In fact, that other person isn't going to satisfy you at all. That other person is only going to reveal how depraved you are. Oh man, before Jen and I got married, I thought I was a pretty righteous guy. It was easy. I was single. I lived on my own. I didn't have, no one ever told me that I stink. No one ever told me that I had bad morning breath. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I could wake up, I could do my thing, I could go into work, I could come home. I felt freedom. And then we got married. And I realized how disgusting I can be. 
you bump up against each other and your flaws are all the more revealed. You don't get married to satisfy. But God grows you in the holiness that He has provided for you when you do get married. But we do that all the time. We chase after these things that we think will finally satisfy us and when we get those things, we realize that it won't. Because God is truly the only thing that will satisfy but the unholy trinity will try to convince you of all these things that you think will satisfy you. But it's only going to be a shadow and will only leave you empty. After this interlude, we enter into the seven bowls of wrath. And this is the final set of judgments. And God's final judgment and His final and His wrath will be poured out on humanity. And the people who did not repent, the people who did not put their faith and trust in Christ, will gather their armies together for a war that is commonly known as Armageddon. And we learned that it's called Armageddon because there's a city named Megiddo, and it will be fought on the plains just north of Megiddo. And so it's called Armageddon, and this is where the armies will gather. They'll, they'll wage war against Christ, but all Christ will have to do is speak a word, and the armies will be wiped out. And then he gives us two more visions. That's the end of the second vision. The two more visions, vision three and vision four, give us a contrast between those in rebellion and those who have repented. And so the first part of vision three, we see the destruction or the justification for the judgment of Babylon. So John will give us a description of Babylon's songs or crimes, and then we'll see three funeral songs that will be contrasted with a marriage feast for believers. And then we see that Satan is bound for a thousand years and Christ will reign, but upon Satan's release at the end of the thousand years, humanity will instantly rebel, and all unbelievers, they won't even form armies, all unbelievers will join in the rebellious act of one last war. There's a lot of questions on why God does this, why God releases Satan again, and I think that it reveals man's depravity is the problem. You could think of Revelation as a courtroom setting, and so often humans try to blame everything else. And so humans will constantly say, well, it's really Satan. Satan's the problem. And God's going to say, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Satan's not the problem. Well, it's really the system. You see, because we are flawed, you've given us flawed governments. And so it's the flawed governments that are the problem. And God's going to say, no, Christ reigned for a thousand years. That will be the perfect system. And yet, there will still be rebellion. And so we see that it's not just Satan tricking us or deceiving us. It's not just that we live in flawed systems. It's that humans have a heart condition that is wicked. And until you come to terms with your wicked, your own wicked heart, you will be in rebellion against God. The cure is to come confessing, God, I have a wicked heart. I have rebelled against you. And ask him for his forgiveness. But it's also recognizing that because of our wickedness, because of our rebellion, we all deserve death. 
We deserve eternal separation from God. But God, because He loves us, because His love compels not just His anger, but His love also compels His mercy and His grace, He came and He paid the price for you and I. He came, He lived a perfectly righteous life, and then He died a sinner's death. And that is the price for your rebellion. So it takes recognizing our own wickedness, but recognizing that He paid the price for our wickedness, and then trusting in His work on the cross. So once again, another army is built of all unbelievers, and this time, God the Father instantly wins the victory. And we see that not only does he instantly win the victory, but before his presence, before his holy, glorious presence, all heaven and earth dissolve. Which brings us to vision four, which is the believer's reward and the renewal of creation. So God makes all things new. He even changes the laws of physics And we get to enjoy him for eternity. And that draws us to the epilogue. The epilogue is, uh, it's kind of like, how should we live? Based on this information, based on this revelation, how then should we react? So Revelation 22, we'll read through 6 through 21, and then we'll walk through it really quickly. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits uh, of the prophets, he sent his angels, to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. 
So there are three main speakers going on here. Uh, the angel, John, and Jesus. There's a, quite a bit of debate about when each one is speaking. I might give you a little bit of my take. The first speaker here is the angel. The same angel that brought him into the third vision and the fourth vision. One of the angels that had the bowls of judgment. This is the first speaker. So he said to me, me being John, these are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. So he's just re-emphasizing that these are trustworthy and true words. That you can trust this vision. John, you didn't just eat some bad food. You're not just having some kind of weird vision. This is truly going to happen. That's the point. And behold, I am coming soon. So we switch from the angel now to Jesus. I am coming soon. So we see both the angel says that the soon must take place, and then Jesus says, I am coming soon. And one of our questions is, what do you mean by soon? If this was written in the, in the 90s, the original 90s, we've been around for 2,000 more years. What's going on? Well, first I would say our idea of soon is uh, very finite, right? When you've only got 70 to maybe 90 years to live, Soon means the next day. If you've only been living for a couple of years, maybe you're a five-year-old playing with Play-Doh right now, soon is like 10 minutes, right? So soon is a very relative term. To someone like you and I, soon means something else. To God, who's been alive for uh, infinity, everlasting, soon might mean something different than, than what it means for you and I. But I also think that this really keys in on salvation history. Once again, we've been talking about this idea of salvation history, starting off in Genesis 3. And God has revealed different uh, things at different times. What he's getting at is, this is going to be the next thing in salvation history. I think that's the key takeaway that we need to take. So, this is the closing of the canon, right? What we can set our lives by, scripture that we submit to, this is the closing of it. That's what he's getting at. And the next thing that will happen in salvation history is this, what's, what's revealed in this book. That's the point that we need to get across, is that it's happening soon. But one of the applications we need to uh, take from this is then how should we live? Well, the idea is that there is an imminent return, meaning that it could happen at any moment. So then how should we live? We should live like Christ is going to return now. Don't put it off. Sometimes people struggle with putting their faith and trust in Christ and they think, I'll think on these things tomorrow. Christ could return today. Don't put it off. That's the point. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So John is just the recipient of the divine message. He's letting us know, once again, he's emphasizing that this is what he wrote. It's not some other scribe. He is an apostle. He was given authority by Christ. That's the point of, of him identifying himself again. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now this is interesting, right? This is actually, he's just restating the mistake that he made back in chapter 1910, that he went to worship an angel at that point. So what's the point? Well, I think it's interesting, one, that he identifies himself. You know, if you made a mistake, would you like to identify yourself? How often are you like, somebody notices a mistake you made, and you're like, yep, that was me, I did that. 
I was the one that made that mistake. Big error on my part. We often don't like to admit or confess that we made a mistake. How many of us, if we made that mistake, would actually omit it? No, I'm not writing that down. I was kind of stupid. I, I look like an idiot. Maybe I shouldn't write that one down. This is authenticating what is really happening. This is what we would call an apologetic. You know, if, if he had just written this out as make-believe, he would make himself look good. This is also another big apologetic for all First and Second Kings. Some people like to be critical of First and Second Kings, and they try to say that that was just a propaganda piece for Israel, and that never really happened. Well, if you read First and Second Kings in light of the cultural and historical context, you realize that Israel looks really bad in First and Second Kings. Actually, you could go from First Samuel all the way through Second Kings, and Israel looks bad. Even Solomon, who people love to talk about how great he was, you know, when it took me a long time to figure out when they talk about how many wives he had and how many armies he had and how much money he had, that was actually a, a condemnation against Solomon. All the way back in Deuteronomy, when God says you're allowed to have a king, he gives them three stipulations, but this king should not store up for himself wives, money, and armies, or horses, which signifies the armies. Those are the three things that he's not supposed to have. And what does Solomon collect, and what do they actually pinpoint? Wives, money, and armies. And then you realize that this isn't actually a propaganda piece on how great Israel is. It's actually a saying, Israel, you messed up. So we see that throughout all of Scripture. It happens over and over again. This isn't a propaganda piece. John isn't writing to show how great he is. He's actually writing saying, man, I messed up. I have a wicked heart just like you do. I am flawed just like you are. But this is real. And God is real. And His grace is real. So he, he goes to worship Him, and then we need to notice what the angel says. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Angels are fellow servants. Some people think that angels are like higher beings than we are. He's identifying himself as a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. And then he gives them the crux of the book. Worship God. That's really what this is all about. It's so easy for us to compromise and bring idols into our life. And he's saying, no, worship God. God. Don't let idols creep in. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So, once again, we're getting to this point where this is the last part of Revelation before the next step of salvation history, and it's time for the church to know. Because the canon is closing, the church needs to know, and this is going to keep the church going. When persecution flares up, turn to this book throughout the history of the church, and even to this day, there are Christians all over the world being persecuted. This gives us the hope to keep going. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. This seems like a confusing statement. A lot of people are like, wait, he's telling people that they just should still be evildoers? Well, we can see through, through the rest of this epilogue that there is still time to repent. So he's not saying you're, you can't repent. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, look, 
these events are going to happen. Whether you're still unrighteous, whether you're still an evildoer, or whether you're righteous and holy, these events will take place. And so you better take note of where you stand. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Or are you still in rebellion against God? That's the purpose of verse 11. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is just summarizing God is holy, God is just, God is God has the authority to be the judge. God has the authority to bring this judgment on. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, I think it's important we take note here. The people that can enter the city are those whose robes have been washed. And how do we wash our robes? By putting our faith and trust in Christ. It's interesting here that he doesn't give us a list of all the actions the righteous people do. You can't earn your way to heaven. There's no amount of righteous actions you can do. If you're a missionary, that's awesome. Uh, Being a missionary is not going to send you to heaven. But he does have a list of those who can't make it in. And that's because those who make it in, those who are the righteous, are identified by Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, God no longer sees you by your actions, but he sees you by Christ's actions. That's important to know. And that's important for us when we mess up. Because you're going to mess up. And Christ isn't looking down upon you in judgment. He looks down upon you and sees you as he sees himself. Once you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are considered righteous, holy, just. There are not more righteous and less righteous Christians. We are all on the same level. Now we can grow and mature in the righteousness and holiness that God has placed upon us, but we cannot make ourselves more righteous. But those who are outside are still seen by their actions. And so that's why he lists the actions. Outside here doesn't mean that they're going to be living in the suburbs outside of the holy city. It's an exclusionary term, meaning they have no part with God. That very being that everyone truly desires, every desire you've ever had is actually a shadow of your true desire, which is for God. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart, You're trying to fill it with other things. The only thing that will really fulfill it is God. But if you have lived your entire life in rebellion against God and never once put your faith and trust in Christ, then for eternity you will be outside. You will be excluded from the perfect relationship with God. We were created to enjoy a relationship with God. That is why you and I were created. But if we never put our faith and trust in God, we will never get to experience that, the very purpose for which we were created. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. So I think uh, from 12 on down to 19 is Jesus speaking here. 
So I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So these, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, these are both messianic titles. What's interesting is these aren't like the suffering servant messianic titles. These are the conquering king warrior messianic titles. And so what the Jews missed in the first advent when Christ first came, we should not miss when he comes again. And that is he comes as a conquering king. He came first as a suffering servant to save us from our sins The next time he comes, he will come as a conquering king. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So this is a call to those who are tired of living in the world system. The world system is just a shadow of what God can really give. But it's also a system that uses and abuses each other. And this is a call to those who are sick and tired of living in this system. Are you tired of the political grandstanding? It seems like every tragic event is followed up by a bunch of politicians that want to use it to gain more power and more control. God is calling to you. The world system is a system of use and abuse. God's system is a system of grace and love and mercy. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is a call to take this book seriously. Don't twist it and use it for your own gain. But instead, study it and submit to it. Take the words here seriously. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The epilogue is all about this is real. This vision is real. This is really how the end of the world will come. God will really come in judgment, in perfect judgment and perfect wrath because His love is perfect. How then should we live? We should take it seriously. We should live every day as if it was going to happen today. The first story in the Bible, or sorry, the first story the Bible gives us after the the first sin, after the fall of man, is murder. That's the first story. And it's a fast wake-up call that we, being our own gods, is going to lead to heartbreak and ruin. When we shake our fist in rebellion against God, it's only going to lead to more heartbreak and ruin. A society in rebellion against God will always lead to heartbreak. And because so much of humanity continues to rebel against God, we will continue 
to live in heartbreak. But this is not the end. There is hope. The wickedness of this world and the rebellion against God will not prevail. In the end, God wins. Have you turned to worship Him? Dear Lord, we love and we praise Your name. We thank You that You are love. And because You are love and You have perfect love, You also have perfect wrath, perfect judgment, perfect righteousness. And we pray that we would seek You out. Help us to recognize the wickedness of our own hearts and turn towards you and to submit to you. In your name we pray, amen.